So it's an interesting question, right? What is reliable? As we observe the body and the mind, there's really nothing that stays the same. It's continual change. Or maybe something stayed the same for you. I don't know what your experience was. But much of what we take to be reliable or trustworthy, we can recognize, at least intellectually, is, you know, only kind of. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, much of the time, that's fine. And then every now and then we run into situations where something we thought was reliable isn't. You know, we get to work and we're laid off or somebody breaks up with us, or uh, we become ill, our body doesn't work anymore. <coughs> and maybe not until that moment did we realize that we, did, did we understand that we were putting a lot of faith or trust <coughs> into that. This is from the Dhammapada. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge, none is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the end of all suffering, then this is the secure refuge, this is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. (coughs) So, I don't know that this literally refers to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, although we do go to places like that for refuge just get me out of here. <laughs> um, but this, you know, we can think about what our refuges are, our body, our home, our relationships, our academic degrees, and therefore our status in the world, our money, other things that we've set up as things that we rely on. It's not that these things aren't worthwhile to have or worth even working to get or defend in some cases. But I think the the pointing to here is the understanding that these are not the secure refuge, they're not the supreme refuge. And that something more reliable is hinted at here with the phrase, going for refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha pointing towards something in the the heart that we can find. So I think the question for all of us is to explore what that means for real in our life. I mean, this is an intellectual teaching. We can understand it abstractly. But, um, you know, what does that mean for each of us?
there's a classic language in the teachings about going for refuge um, in the Buddha. I'll talk about each one a little bit, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And it goes like this. It's when a lay person declares uh, refuge. Excellent, excellent. It is if a man were to set upright that which was overturned, or were to reveal that which was hidden, or were to point out the way to one who had gone astray, or were to hold a lamp amidst the darkness, so that those who have eyes may see. Even so, as the teachings been explained in various ways by the Buddha, may the Buddha remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. So that's what people said in his presence when he gave a teaching. Now we don't really have, um, we don't have the living presence of a Buddha, and that might not be the language we would choose. I imagine he was quite inspiring as a presence. I can imagine language like that. We don't have we don't have that literally in our world. But it's interesting that the Buddha never actually told people that they ought to go for refuge in him. He didn't, he didn't say it that way. He didn't really want to himself be that refuge. Um, in the suttas, people kind of spontaneously proclaim this, and he doesn't stop them, but he never really said that. What he did say, one thing that he said, interestingly, is he said for people to take refuge in two things, themselves and the Dharma. So he said, this is when he was dying, he said, the islands unto yourselves, be your own refuge, having no other. Let the Dhamma be an island and a refuge to you, having no other. So, you know, the, the part that's the Buddha, maybe it's the, the part that in, in us that declares, you know, that points towards some of these things that was said in the earlier one. What is it in us that allows us to see? <coughs> what is it in us that allows us to find our way? What is it in us that knows what is upright and what isn't? These are the things that are pointed to that people say when they're inspired by the Dharma. And maybe in us there's something like that that helps us know those things. Maybe this is a suggestion of what refuge in the Buddha can point to. Do you have something like that in your own heart? And then he points also towards the Dhamma, interestingly. I don't know if it's in this tradition or another, but somebody did once ask the Buddha what he takes refuge in. And he said the Dharma. Um, don't know that he needed to take refuge. He may not have used that exact word, phrasing, but you know he had no teacher. He was the teacher. But he still respected the Dharma, the flow of the way things are. The expression of what might be called truth, but is points toward the truth that's happening now. 
for me, a lot of trusting the Dharma is trusting the process that is unfolding through my path. I truly don't know where I will be five years from now, if I'll be alive. But where the path will flow by then, maybe something very predictable, conventional, unfolding from what's here now, or maybe something completely different, I don't know. But there's a certain trust uh, of that, that this process has a way of untangling, of unfolding, of bringing forth some potential, which is not always pleasant, is wholesome, is moving in a direction toward peace. The subtitle of Sharon Salzberg's book that's called Faith is Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, which I kind of like. I think this is the art of refuge. Can I really trust my own understanding when there is no genuine confirmation of it from elsewhere? And, you know, from regular society and maybe even from others on the path, sometimes we're in some unique place and of course our own experience is not so easy to convey sometimes and yet there it is. Um, So walking the path feels to me like learning to live from this place in a sense. And it definitely takes practice. (laughs) How to be in touch with the deep freedom of the heart, something we may have glimpsed. We don't live in our own deepest experience every moment. I don't Um, but it's there somehow as a reference point and to live in the world but with this as a reference point somehow so the Sangha is said to be there's a phrase about it that's said to be born of the Dhamma So in a way, a Sangha is an emergent quality of a world where the Dharma is taught. Then there are going to be people who are following that path. So one way to think about the Sangha is that it serves the function of guides along that path. You know, our our teachers may literally be the guides. Remember, we were instructed earlier to check in what is praised by the wise, not to only trust our own understanding, which might have some misperception. And also our friends, our peers along the path help us see things that we didn't see otherwise and sometimes uh, help us see where we're clinging because they push our buttons. It's true that the Sangha is not always a support in the sense of providing loving kindness and <coughs> trust and reliability. Sometimes the Sangha is a support by pointing out our annoying features. Our friend comes and says, Do you know that you interrupt me? of the time that I'm speaking, you had no idea. But they're your friend, they can say that to you. 
and you learn. <laughs> Sangha serves this function also. Or if you've ever lived in community, I used to live at the Insight <coughs> Retreat Center. I lived there for two and a half years with several other people. That's a good test of clinging. Or if you have a partner at home. So our, our guides on the path, pointing out the places where we're clinging and the places where we're free. So I, I don't I don't know what the truth is in a way that can be expressed as a formula or something that you can hold on to. But I know that these teachings provide a, a path for the unfolding of whatever potential we have in this body, in this mind. And that there's something reliable about the very unfolding, the continual change that happens as we walk the path. And so there's something true about that in the way that an arrow shoots truly or things that are aligned are said to be true because they're well matched. Something about matching well ourselves, the world. So we create the path through our understanding of the moment, through our effort, through our devotion. This is from Stephen Batchelor about the three refuges opening into and becoming the experience of walking the path. As we learn to play this complex instrument of bones, flesh, nerves, impulses, thoughts, and feelings, we trace a path that weaves its way like a channel through the landscape of our experience. It is guided by an intuitive yearning for what we value most deeply. Its space is the openness we are able to tolerate within our hearts and minds. It is sustained by the networks of friendship that inspire us to keep going. The path follows the contours of our life as one day turns into the next. It is found amidst the most mundane of circumstances as well as the most sublime. To create a path is to become intimate with the space opening up within, around, and before us. This intimacy comes from the mindful awareness of what is unfolding in our body, feelings, minds, and worlds from moment to moment. We get used to the taste, the feel, the texture of the path. It ceases to be something to which we self-consciously aspire. When we stray from it, we feel its loss as an act of self-betrayal.
for creating this path. We come upon something that is truly reliable. The Buddha says it this way, a person's deliverance being founded upon truth is unshakable for that is false which has a deceptive nature and that is true which has an undeceptive nature Nibbana this is the supreme noble truth namely Nibbana which has an undeceptive nature I don't think he's pointing to something vast and mystical and unknowable, although it may appear that way at times. I think he's pointing to that which is undeceptive right now. That which has an undeceptive nature what in this moment has an undeceptive nature? And it's not an external object separate from us, nor is it our own little self that's concerned with its position in the world. But somehow, all of that. right here, closer than we think. Maybe it's so simple we don't see it. That which is undeceptive. So I hope your ongoing explorations of the Dharma will include a lot of questions, maybe the ones that brought you to today, about what is reliable and what is worthy of my trust and what is really true. That yearning in your heart is to be taken seriously not too seriously so that it becomes heavy but not at all to be dismissed sort of thoughts or feelings or questions are coming up at this point yeah I'd like to share from my experience today I oh please um, I found that I paid attention to the sensations in my body I've been practicing for years <laughs> but I had a new 
insight today, and that was when I paid attention to the sensations in my body and I could put my body at ease, it's kind of like um, settling into a meditation of sitting. My body settles down first, and the mind is still going, but once the body settles down, then the mind follows, or can follow, and when the mind settles down, I can separate the stories, or the stories and the judgments can fall away, and my mind becomes clear. And then the heart can soften, and the walls or the protection that I usually hold there can fall away. And that feels so liberating. Mm. It's exhausting to hold it all together. So, like you mentioned, I can't always be there, but when I recognize holding or or uh, discomfort, or I have. something to work with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. I have a question. Uh, so I was raised by secular scientists and my experience of the that Postmodern kind of relativism that you described is, um, for me, I feel it's caused quite a bit of suffering. And in my practice, um, when I have those moments of um, clarity and awareness, I and I feel like I'm in touch with the truth. It has a universal quality. <coughs> And I, I know, you know, there are a lot of issues with absolute truth and religions that um, um, evangelize absolute truth. But I guess I'm still, I have a yearning to explore the, the universal and, and its ability to connect us to each other. When you say it has a universal quality, can you describe this quality? You may not be able to. It's a real question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can only think about it in terms of my experience. That it, it feels very simple. A lot of what you described, Carol, of the, the opening of the heart. Um, and it just feels very... Mm. Um, and then it, it in that truth it for me is a universal quality not something I want to force on someone else but um, the opening has that 
quality to it. It mm-hmm. feels very human, very much of this earth. <laughs> yeah, that um, it's a beautiful reference point to carry within you. You know, you, you touch it at times. I'm interpreting a little bit, and I think living from that place is you know, an expression of deep spirituality. And just as you said, it doesn't need to be held as a universal truth or that you would impose on someone, but it can be carried as as that reference point from which you interact with the world. Is making sense? Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to offer direction. I wasn't quite clear on your question. (laughs) Well, I guess I'm just curious um, what Buddhism has to say about a more uh, universal qualities. I mean, certainly the reading I've done, they bring true as universal. And then the next step of the, the connection... You know, between us, if that if those universal qualities exist, I think universal is a. Um, I don't know that that word was um, used in the same way in Buddhism. There are qualities that are infinite, so and and connecting. So the. Um, the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity are said to be boundless qualities and can spread through the whole universe, touching all beings, and are the universal emotions, if you will. I'm, I'm interpreting that phrase, but you know, things that the beautiful qualities of the human heart that are connecting and existing between all of us. I think there's a bit of a shying away from something universal that exists as one thing within the um, Buddhist realm. Not because it's not, and people do have unity experiences, strong experiences of not-self, of being completely connected. And these are wonderful, beautiful, um, celebrated experiences, actually. They're just not said to be the the final (laughs) experience um, or teaching. And so that's why I pointed to it as a reference point, is that we carry our deepest experience, like Sharon Salzberg says, faith. We carry our trust in our deepest, most beautiful, most human, most universal experience um, as our way of walking the path, essentially. So I see this as beautiful and positive. I wish everybody could touch a feeling that felt like connection with, there'd be a lot less strife in the world if more people felt in that way. There is something to share. We may not be able to contain it very well in our own little
just want to say that I didn't really come with questions today. I, I'm experiencing a lot of not knowing. Uh-huh, not knowing. So, um, it's um, somewhat difficult to be with, but it's just where I am. So, I, you know, it's like, there's, I feel like I have a little nap here mm-hmm. that's with like some answers to come, but there's nothing I can do about it. So it's just basically with um, purpose of my living mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Yeah. I um. I was touched by this one of the phrases in the Stephen Bachelor quote that says. Its space is the openness we are able to tolerate within our hearts and minds. He acknowledges that this openness, I think that we could say openness is related to not knowing, and that there's a certain degree of tolerance that has to go with that. It's not easy to bear something like that. And practice has a role in helping to increase our capacity for bearing that openness. And it's not that we'll feel it 24-7, but there are times where it comes and then we... It's just so helpful to me to be here today. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to teaching. Um, and that's kind of all that I need right now. Great. Question, answers may come. In the meantime, I'm just living with questions. Mm-hmm. Very good. And your presence was helpful today, too. The fact that you came supported everyone else here, whether you knew it or not. Something that's striking me is, as I sit here listening and after being here today is the analogy to music and or an instrument, learning an instrument, and that feeling of learning a new chord that you finally, like on the guitar, which is, I, I don't call myself a musician, but I did grow up playing guitar and learning from my brother. And um, there is that moment of figuring out and understanding a chord when you can get it and it's natural. And that the other chords you'll be learning, it's kind of endless. Um, but there is something, I, I think my recent um, sort of immersion in, in the, the Buddhist studies um, have been feeling like that for me. And it is very exciting. Um, you know, little by little, this instrument is being played. And, and it's in, you know, it can be in harmony or disharmony with all the other instruments, but it's just a nice analogy that came up for me today. I don't think I really thought of that until today. So it's always so nice to have these sits and quiet to let those things bubble to the surface. Yeah. So okay. thanks. And thank you for sharing that. It's a beautiful analogy.
gates well. And we can dedicate the merit of our practice today. And we can remember that just by coming here to sit and participate in the Dharma, we can't help but benefit others in some way <clears throat> through our increased liberation in whatever small or large way, through our kindness and patience that we're going to return home with, through our living from a place of universal connection a little bit more fully because we've practiced it a bit today whatever it is that was meritorious in what we did we dedicate that to the benefit of all beings the welfare of all living beings may all beings be happy may all beings find peace and may all beings everywhere free.